Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time it may be while you're listening. Welcome to the latest episode of Criterion Cast. Uh, this is episode 183. We've been a little sporadic over the last few months. I have not been a part of this at all, sad to say. Uh, but life has mellowed out as life eventually does. Uh, but thank you to David and Trevor, who are joining me once again today, for taking the reins in my absence. Uh, David, how have you been? I've been really great. It's the uh, first day of summer. Life is good. I've had a nice vacation in the last few weeks. And uh, just looking forward to getting back into the swing of things with a fantastic discussion about a great movie. So, about a very uh, swinging film. Yeah, baby, it's uh, <laughs> happening. <laughs> I've been jealous of all your uh, vacation picks, David. I have not made it out to Antelope Canyon yet myself, uh, but it's close enough for me to be tempted by it for sure. Well, please do. It's it's a wonderful experience, whether you just do it for a weekend or a week like we packed a lot in. Uh, but, yeah, explore the wonders of the West. It's, uh, it's a pretty amazing place out there. And Trevor, how is uh, the mountainous region treating you? All's good. It's really hot outside, like 97 tonight. Oh, damn. Yeah, we were just sitting outside, and I was just sitting there in the shade, and it was too hot. So it's good yeah. to be in the house, air-conditioned, and talking some Criterion. <laughs> there you go. Uh, the Criterion we are talking tonight is a very recent release. It is uh, spine number 865, Michelangelo Antonioni's 1966 landmark culture-smashing Ratings bashing, uh, just explosion of a film blow up. Uh, I had seen this film several years before, uh, but not anytime recently. And I wasn't that big a fan of it when I first saw it. So I was kind of eager. I actually suggested this as a topic before I even had a chance to rewatch it, not knowing if I would come around on it at all. And in some ways, uh, I, I still completely haven't. I, I don't think this is a top tier Antonioni, I, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm very eager to hear what you guys think of it and your experience over the course of your lives, or if this is maybe the first time you're seeing it. I don't think it is in the case of David anyway, but I don't know Trevor's story here. But uh, a quick uh, description on behalf of Criterion, as I like to do. They describe it as such. In 1966, Michelangelo Antonioni transplanted his existentialist ennui to the streets of swinging London for his international sensation, the Italian filmmaker's first English-language feature. A countercultural masterpiece about the act of seeing and the art of image-making, Blup, takes the form of a psychological mystery starring David Hemmings as a fashion photographer who unknowingly captures a death on film after following two lovers in a park. Antonio's meticulous aesthetic control and intoxicating color palette breathe life into every frame, and the jazzy sounds of Herbie Hancock, a beautifully evasive performance by Vanessa Redgrave, and a cameo by the Yardbirds make the film a transporting time capsule from a bygone era. Blow Up is a seductive immersion into creative passion and a brilliant film by one of cinema's greatest artists. Uh, yeah, I certainly agree that one of cinema's greatest artists. I think about Antonioni a lot, actually. Um, he and Bergman are kind of always at the forefront of my daily thinking. I think in part because Bergman, well, besides being my favorite filmmaker, Bergman is so concerned with the interior of life and the spiritual and emotional way we process the world around us. Uh, whereas Antonioni, who actually died the same day as Bergman, so they're kind of forever linked in cinephile circles, uh, Antonioni is very much about the way we experience the outer world and how strange and beguiling and confusing and unpredictable the physical space around us can be. So I think in some ways they kind of represent two uh, dualities of the way we move through life and two important ways of experiencing And I think maybe that's why I tend to think of them a lot. And this is in many ways a, a pretty sharp departure for Antonioni. He would get into 
even more psychedelic realms with the uh, 1970s Zabriskie point. Uh, but this is, I mean, just from the opening credits alone with that awesome score is very much not uh, the film that you'd be making in uh, Italy, even though those open with their own kind of swinging score sometimes too. But uh, from there, it's, uh, it's a pretty wild scene he finds himself in. David, you're kind of, uh, I think of you as kind of the resident 60s fan of the Criterion oh, Cast yeah. family. I feel like this is very much <laughs> your scene. Am I correct in saying that uh, you are a big fan of this movie? Oh, yeah. I mean, the more I watch it, the more I love it. You know, I uh, podcasted with this in a way with Arik Devins a couple of years ago on my uh, Criterion Reflections blog. And at that time, I had, I had seen the film a time or two uh, years prior, but then, you know, kind of revisited it. Uh, for the sake of uh, watching it when it was in line as a Criterion Laserdisc only release, and I had kind of expanded my sequence to include uh, any Criterion affiliated title, and so of course it was a real delight to me to see not only that they re-released it as a Blu-ray, but really gave it the complete deluxe treatment. Uh, but yeah, this film is is a is a landmark to me. I mean, I was all of what five years old when it came out. But as I watch it now, it just feels like it's hitting my total sweet spot with with so many elements of of pop culture, of music, of um, y- y- just expanding the boundaries of cinema. And I, I and I, and I I kind of understand what you're saying, Scott, as far as maybe not top tier Antonioni, but this was his, you know, maybe not logical next step, but it was pretty much I think the perfect uh, expansion of his artistic vision you know breaking out of italy and going to where things were happening and london was the thing that was happening in 1965-66 and uh you know this is a great example i guess also of of the extra enhanced enjoyment that a uh even a fan of a film can get by very well chosen criterion supplements we'll get into that probably later bond but uh you know the extra features that were packed into this set really just escalated my esteem of this film as I recognized more and more of the detail of what Antonioni was setting out to do and what I think he really brilliantly achieved. So uh, it was a moment in time and it's a moment that, you know, becomes transcendent because it, it persists even though the swinging 60s of, of London have long faded into <laughs> whatever London is doing nowadays. So yes, I'm a huge fan of this film and can't wait to get into it even further. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about the film is how it really had to be made in this kind of like three-year period, which it landed in the middle of. You know, the 60s London and its capturing would have been gone even just a few years later. And a lot of that's true of a lot of 60s culture in general. So it's interesting that Antonioni seized it as quickly as it, it did, it being a foreign country to him and all. Uh, Trevor, was this your first time seeing it or had you had a long history with this film as well? It was both, <laughs> in, okay. in a way. The, the reason I say that is it was my first time seeing it, but the film is so infamous and comes up so often when you're reading almost any book about cinema, it seems, um, that it, you know at the same time it felt very familiar. Though I didn't know all the nuances, I didn't know all the little details that go here, there, everywhere, and nowhere. Um, it was still something that was kind of part of my consciousness without ever having tasted it. Um, so it was really interesting to get the Blu-ray and pop it in and say to myself, 
is this famous just because of its place in cinematic history um, for its its kind of um, infamous um, content that just incinerated the code when MGM decided to release it anyway without an approval certificate and it went on to, to both make money and garner critical acclaim and kind of made people say, eh, we don't need the code anyway, apparently. Um, is that the only reason people still talk about it? Or is there really something inherently wonderful about this film that even if it had been made, you know, it, I think it had to be made in the time period, but even if it had been made then and it didn't have all that cultural baggage of what it did to cinema, would it still be something um, that I would enjoy that was um, kind of held up on its own? And so it was It was a lot of fun just kind of unveil the mystery a little bit and get a closer look at the film Um from all the stories and, and try to strip away all of that extraneous um, material about the film. And yeah, I, I was baffled and delighted by it. I I just sat there watching it thinking, I have no idea what's going on a lot of the time and enjoying that. Um, and then as I thought about it and eventually wrote about it, um, coming to really appreciate it. So anxious as, as both of you are to dig a little deeper. Yeah. One of the interesting things about it is Antonioni is, of course, foreignness uh, coming into it. I think even apart from knowing uh, who he is, and at the time he certainly had a huge international reputation, I, I think you can kind of tell that it has that touch of like an, an outsider's perspective that you'd see in a lot of other films of the period. I think of like Jacques Demy's Model Shop 2 has the same kind of feel of somewhat stilted dialogue, somewhat uh, removed camera positioning, and just catching on to little details that I think maybe a native artist would take for granted. One of the things that I really like about it is the way it opens uh, with these kind of visions of uh, kind of the more downtrodden areas of London that David Hemmings is emerging from. And it's really well directed. You can spot David Hemmings immediately. He seems like he doesn't quite belong in the crowd that he's wandering amidst. Uh, and we find out later that he's really just kind of using them as an artistic uh, subject. But right away we get a context for this film that not everybody in London is living the way that these characters do, which is kind of like pseudo glamorous. You know, none of them seem to be like terribly rich, but they're very much, uh, they're living the fashion of the times that they have a certain glamour to them. Uh, and right away we can see that this isn't a natural part of London, that it's this thing that's kind of sprung up around the edges of it, which I find uh, very interesting, which Antonioni of course, has a lot of visual perspectives on. Yeah, London has this little bohemian district of sorts where, you know, the artsy types hang out and the models and the photographers and the creatives, are they're kind of in these little dingy warehouses, but they've converted them into these not, not really posh spaces, but, but you know, very thrilling, uh, you know, full of art, full of vibrancy, uh, there's a kind of a loose uh, swagger and 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 zest that's happening there, and you know Antonioni just kind of finds this scene, and uh, as a international, you know, revered uh, cineast uh, genius and all of that, he is kind of you know in the know, and he's got the connections to say, hey, where's the thing happening? What's what's going on these days? And he's he's traveled the circuits, he's been around, and. And so he is very perceptive, and and uh, you know he sought out London as kind of 
the next place to go. I think, uh, you know, very, very reasonably, he says, I've, I've milked Italy, my, my opportunities, my reputation, uh, the creative possibilities are beyond, you know, the, the domestic territory that I've pretty well covered. And so it is time to sort of take that next step. And, uh, you know, again, 65, 66, London is, is about as, as vibrant as it gets, you know, anywhere in the world within, you know, within the Western friendly world, at least. And, uh, it's, it, it is, it's, it's quite remarkable, this story that he's woven, uh, incorporating, you know, photography and the technology of the times, the music of the times, the, you know, the, 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 the you know, relatively freewheeling, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll aspect of, of the young, younger generation, you know, Antonioni, I was probably what, in his mid forties or so at this point. So he's a little bit of an elk. Hmm? I think he was in his fifties even. Yeah. Maybe fifties. Okay. So he's a bit of an elder statesman sort of almost, I mean, in a very different light, but you know, Timothy Leary was in that same stage of life where he's really looking at these young people as, as, as the age of his own children. And, uh, but he's, he's also very, you know, energetic and, and lively. He's certainly not, you know, you know, aging out or anything, but he he's he's got a, a critical and an uh, informed and you know, somewhat enlightened perspective on what's happening with this new kind of post-war generation, the baby boomers coming of age, and he wants to capture that just as he's captured you know the you know the young people of Italy and uh, in his earlier films. So you know, to me, he he took perfect advantage of this this opening that that was created for him, and forged a, an artistic vision that does you know certainly without any dispute have a lot of loose ends a lot of unresolved issues here but it's it, it's so intriguing and and so um, absorbing that I think even even if you look at these scenes as kind of a conglomeration of segments that don't completely add up uh, you still have something of, of great substance and, and value and, uh, you know, eminent rewatchability. So um, I'm, I'm really, you know, just more and more impressed that the deeper I get engrossed into this little saga that he spun. You know, one thing that, that this brings to mind, David, um, and I find this in most reviews and in your conversation with Arik, um, you guys... We almost never start with the kind of central focal event of the movie. We start with all these knickknacks and all these little things that are going on around the edges. And it just confirms to me that this isn't necessarily a movie about this murder mystery or anything like that. This is a movie about 1966 London through the eyes of Antonioni. He does yeah. not care about the connections. He does well, not he care says, about resolution. Yeah. Right. In one I mean, of the he, little interviews of that time, he says, "This is a day in the life of a photographer." That's that's really what the movie is. It's just yeah. a, a a little transit through his experience in the course of a pretty compressed segment of time, and uh, just like well, a that, typical day in the life, just kind of leads to where it leads, and then you sort of have to shrug your shoulders and see what's next. <laughs> well, and I think that that little theme, you know, the the where it goes with this mystery is a, a just more of an underlining of Antonioni's look at this culture and at this, this society at this particular time. Um, once I was able to kind of get over that, that I wasn't really supposed to care about trying to solve the mystery, though that's fun and intriguing and definitely adds a lot to the film, um, that it's more about, 
you know, looking at things and, and seeing things sometimes out of focus, seeing things sometimes disconnected. And I, I, I really started to relate that to his earlier films, and they opened up to me. So for me, Blow Up was actually a film that helped me start to appreciate more of Antonioni than I had before, because I didn't really care for the Alienation trilogy all that much. I found parts of it intriguing, but I didn't... I don't, you know, I didn't get it, and and maybe I still don't get it entirely, but this film really did start, it was kind of like a key um, to that doorway, and opened up a lot of, of the, of, of some of those feelings, and started to help me see um, a little bit more, at least from my perspective, what Antonioni is up to in all these, and I find it very intriguing, and, and like I say, pretty fascinating that most people, uh, you know, if you, if you talk about Blowout, you know, um, De Palma's film from uh, 15 years later that uh, has some similar things with the murder mystery, you, you start right with the murder mystery, really. You know, that's the central piece, and it's meant to be that way. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just find it interesting that when people talk about blow-up, it's usually about London. That You know, even if we expect to talk about the mystery and about the film and about all of that, yeah, we just don't, we don't do it that often. <laughs> so, anyway, just something that I find interesting and like i say has opened up some windows for me finally yeah i can totally see that i mean in some ways by the time the mystery even kicks in which takes like an hour of a two-hour movie to even start um but when he's kind of going through the blow-ups that he makes of the photographs and looking at different perspectives and different ways of seeing the pictures he's taken it's kind of like an instruction manual for seeing other antonioni movies i think especially of uh, le Clis, which has many shots in it that you can't tell right away what you're even looking at. It takes a few seconds for the camera to move or for some people to come into the frame to get some sense of scale to kind of even figure out what you're seeing. And I, I think uh, David's going through a similar experience here. And in many ways, uh, Antonio is using David as sort of an analog for himself and his way of approaching people and the world around him, uh, which, I mean, if he is that much of an analog, is not most flattering self-portrait because... Uh, David Hemming's character is intensely unpleasant, even as far as Antonioni characters go. Um, but it's an interesting analog, nonetheless, and it's one that a ton of filmmakers have used before, the idea of a photographer, because filmmaking itself is not the most cinematic occupation. There's so much waiting around on film sets that few filmmakers have really captured it well. But photography is perfect because it's so spur of the moment and so impulsive and so reactive that you can show them directly inside the environment they're capturing and all the little things that they use as inspiration. You know, I mean, I just saw uh, Clint Eastwood's The Bridges of Madison County the other night, and that's a similar thing where he's using himself as a photographer, as an analog for filmmaking, and a lot of the things he says is a lot of Clint Eastwood's approaches to filmmaking. It's a similar thing with David Hemmings in terms of, uh, I, I think, the sort of intense uh, glee he takes from uh, women in particular <laughs> and the way that women can contort themselves on frame. Uh, I think you see that in the way he photographs, I think, the woman at the beginning where he's like getting on top of her directly. And then later when Vanessa Redgrave shows up, you see a lot of her motions and poses kind of taking on similar forms there. Well, yeah, and also his um, his attempt to balance that out. He's he's also doing the social realism thing, you know, the, the working man and the, the poor and the oppressed and the... And the you know the the guys coming up from the you know the 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 grungy gutter side of life, uh, he 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 is trying to absorb the world and and present it through his lens, 
and capture it spontaneously, uh, blending in among kind of the, the, the working class riffraff as well as the, you know, the haute couture and, and, and the, uh, you know, the beautiful women and, and, and how he sort of shuttles between those two worlds and, and even, you know, with the, you know, the, the pot parties and the kind of the, a little bit more of the decadent scene later on in the film, uh, you know, when he goes into the concert and, and kind of mingles with that crowd, he, he doesn't really seem to have a home in any of those places, but he's, he's just kind of this, uh, you know, uh, quasi omniscient eye who's this, just trying to document as much of the world around him. And I think that is very Antonioni like, uh, kind of like well, you said, the that that external world, that that oddness of just sort of stepping back and say, "Wow, what am I seeing? And what's going on around me? And and what does this all mean?" <laughs> well, and he's, he, I think he's arrogant enough to think that he should be the conduit for all of that. That he does have an a, approach or a perspective that's unique and insightful. And he's, I like how Antonioni him, pulls that back and is kind of like. No, you're kind of a fool. You know, you you're gonna see that you don't see. Uh, you know, I I, I like that because he starts out uh, that the David Hemmings character starts out so uh, pompous and arrogant that that you can't even see. I, at least I don't. I don't even see his attempts to document the working class as well. He's a he's genuine a, he's a bit, attempt, right? Well, he's a bit of a poser because he's exploiting whatever his subjects are. He's he's young. He's rich. He's cocky. You know, he's he's got a Rolls Royce that he toodles around London in. I mean, he's he's definitely a little bit of the cock of the walk here, and and feeling his his privilege, which was another thing about swinging London. You have all these young men in their twenties who are being you know feted and and revered around the world. All these. Uh, you know these these pop stars, these these you know glamorous young people who are really just ordinary blokes, but you know because they're semi good looking and fashionable. You know I think of uh, Ray Davies and the Kinks, the dedicated follower of fashion. You know they're just they just happen to be in the right place at the right time, and so there are ordinary plebeians from all different societies who are thinking that's the man. Yeah, they're, they're the stuff, you know, and. <laughs> they've just sort of fallen into it but he has dedicated himself to this you know artistic vision of the, you know the man with the camera and he's learned how to work his little piece of equipment there and he he does bring it into interesting places and he's getting published and he's making money so you know you can't really fault a young man for thinking he is kind of a special creature because it's all falling into place for him quite nicely thank you Yeah, yeah, I agree, and and I I love all those insights. Um, do you think now? And maybe I'm misreading some things, but that's where I think the mystery really comes to play is in tearing that down, like removing the scales from his eyes a little bit. Do you do you agree with me with that particular point, or do you think that he he still, you know, who who is who is David Hemming's character at the end of the film? I guess. Well, he's almost nothing. He he disappears, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I I I guess my thought is that he, he's again fallen into this other kind of weird situation. You know, uh, another song comes to mind: Donovan's season of the witch. How everything's just so strange, you know, and and uh, you you can't exactly you know pull all the pieces together and 
figure out exactly what's going on. Stuff is just happening at a breakneck speed all around him. And, and there is that kind of you know, hallucinatory, am I tripping? Is this real? What's going on? You, you don't really have time to even figure it out before you're on to the next thing. And, and again, life, I think, was moving at a very accelerated pace uh, for you know, certain people at, at this time. And, and I think Antonioni is sort of trying to capture the whirlwind that, that a lot of young people were going through as they're, you know, doing the standard, you know, coming of age thing when you're in your early twenties, but you're in this pretty vibrant scene where there are a lot of, uh, rules being broken, a lot of standards being called into question. And, uh, yeah, it's just the, the conventionalities of what life had seemed to be in the 50s and early 60s are now sort of all in a in a you know all topsy turvy and and so you know there's there's a lot of uncertainty as to where the future is going and you know Scott already said you know the the transitory nature of the London scene really would swing pretty dramatically even by the end of the 60s and you know 68 is a pretty notorious year for upheaval and revolution and and tumult and cultures all around the globe and so this 66 67 scene is kind of this little ephemeral bubble that is about to burst but in the meantime let's just you know ride the groove as long as we can in terms of the ending you brought up trevor i wanted to get david's thoughts before I chimed in with my own, because that's where I kind of feel like the film starts to come up short. I mean, ultimately, I don't know. I mean, what is the film really about? It's kind of about this like sense of the limitations of seeing of your own perception of your own technical skill. And it's, it's, it feels a little too, I don't know, I guess technical and academic for me in terms of the cinema and this idea of like what the camera can capture and the way the camera sees things. And it's not, it doesn't, quite connect that I think to something human I guess or some sort of direct experience of the times I, I don't know it never really kind of comes back around for me in a emotional sense I don't know um just a couple of thoughts on that when I saw the ending I thought of a, of a series of books by a fellow named Javier Marias um, he's a Spanish writer I, I hope he wins the Nobel Prize one day and he writes a lot about the Spanish Civil War and about the just absolute inability to know what was going on with anybody because your neighbors don't talk anymore. They're afraid of getting turned in by somebody. You don't know what they're really feeling. And, um, and one of the books he, he writes is um, it's, a, it's a series, uh, it's a trilogy called Your Face Tomorrow. And there's a, a, a long passage in the first one of that where the main character goes upstairs. It's like early, early morning, you know, late, late night. There's after a big party and he finds a little spot of blood on, on the wood floor. And he goes to clean it up, kind of wondering what it is. And it goes into this really long kind of exposition about how can he know what it is? It could have been anything. It could have been from a woman. It could have been from a man. It could have been from a sword. Maybe someone's dead, you know, if someone's dying. And, and then he goes into the thought, did I even see it? You know, the evidence is all gone. The, um, the spot has been cleaned up. And after that, your mind can, can only hold on to that assurance, that surety for so long. 
And I, I, I read, maybe I'm incorporating by reference where I shouldn't, um, but I do capture a little bit of that emotional upheaval at the end of, of this film as it relates not just to cinema and what we're capturing, but also to this time period, as David's kind of uh, mentioned, with how fast it's going. And maybe a, a moment where you look at yourself and you go, what is going on with me and how do I even know anymore? And so it did strike a little bit more of a personal chord for me. But I don't know, I might be reading into it too much there and um, and making it too personal as opposed to um, approaching it from the, uh, the most adequate um, cinematic lens. I'm not sure. No, I, I can totally see that. I think the film leaves space for that. I, I don't know. I just think it's one of those things that the film doesn't itself kind of come back around to in small, no small part because he does go to the park and see a body. I mean, what are we to make of that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, what, but why is it there? You know, why, why? And, and it does get removed. Right. And so, you know, why was it there? Was it just someone who fell down and, and died? Was it actually part of a, a murder? You know, there, there's a great sense of, I really can only know so much here. And, and even when the body is removed, can you be sure that what you saw that night, I mean, how long is he going to be able to hold on to that? I, I know I saw a body, especially once the camera, once the film, filmic evidence, as unclear as it was, once that's even gone, except for right. the one central picture, <laughs> which is and pretty he, fun. And he, I don't, I don't recall. I don't think he ever actually touches the body. I mean, there there is an argument to be made, I guess, that Antonioni in some ways is getting kind of cutesy or indulgent <laughs> because he's he's you know he is kind of playing tricks with cinema and and with the filmed image and the locked in narrative. You know, we don't have the complete freedom to investigate the evidence for ourselves. We only see what he chooses to let us see. You know, and. Uh, yeah, even which even, is part yeah. of the theme too. Right. Well, exactly. Right. This this is a very constructed artifice here, and he's he's toying with us in in a sense. But you know, as willing participants, I guess, do you choose to go along for the ride or not? And to me, uh, yeah, I I see no reason to sort of you know divorce or abstract myself from what he's doing because i just enjoy so much of it it's like yeah i'll 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 uh i'll buy in here i guess that's just you know again he's he's hitting a lot of sweet spots for me as a fan of the 60s as a child of that era and as a as a very creative expressive voice who's really at the forefront of that uh, cultural avant-garde moment have any of you guys seen uh Zabriskie point no, I, I am dying to. I mean, I, I the most I've seen is just some posters. Uh, you know, again, it's it's one of these kind of mysterious uh, uh, relics of the late '60s. And uh, I don't know is there is there a good quality uh, uh, home media disc of that available, Scott? That you know of? Yeah, or you uh, see it in theater. WB of all people actually put one out in like 2008, yeah. 2009, I think. And it's, uh, okay. I mean, it's just a DVD, but it's very good quality. Uh, I definitely okay. recommend seeing that because this, I don't know, it blew up to me kind of exists like between the, you know, Red Desert, Le Clissera, and then Zabriskie Point, which is, Zabriskie Point is like insane. I mean, there's so many abstractions and so many uh, sort of polemic angles to it. And it really goes like all out in terms of the visual expression, just indulging in the, 
flower child slash revolutionary era in which it's set um right and that's that's kind of where he's going to the west coast and the hippies yeah out exactly there kind of as the next frontier and I, my understanding is that it was a bit of a flop or a yeah, bomb big or time. whatever <laughs> big time and and it was kind of where the audience of the mainstream just wasn't able to follow antonioni and of course you know there's a there's a big gap culturally between the 63 64 and then 66 uh, 67 blow up you know, by 70, you know, some things had changed. Oh, and, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and he's getting older, and, and the audiences are going in different directions, and there's more accessible trippiness, if that's what you're looking for in a film, than uh, uh, maybe what Antonioni had in mind. Yeah, so, part of I the still, reason... I'm I've, still dying to see it, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Part of the reason I bring it up is because that is... I think it's inevitable for people between... I don't know, I'd say maybe a little younger than me and... Uh, older than you guys to have some sort of nostalgia for the sixties, because even if in my case, you know, I had no direct experience of it at all. Uh, but it's so like embedded. in I think the pop culture that's lasted through the 20th century of just imagery and music and movies and stuff that like some sense of that culture, I think everyone holds on to some angle of it. And for me, I've never really connected to whatever was going on in London in the sixties, but what was what we're going on in California, I'm like all about. And so Zabriskie <laughs> point for me is like completely up my, up in my wheelhouse. Whereas blow okay, up, so I think you're a fan the, of that film. Definitely. Okay. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I've never seen it either, but you have me wondering if I'd watch it and think, man, blow ups. It's dumb. But again, I think uh, part of the connection to this film to blow up is, I think in some angle, the nostalgia, and I'm not like saying that as a denigration. I think there are just things that everyone latches onto immediately, you know, as soon as they come on screen. And for me, like I said, the oh, brisky yeah, point was operating right in my wheelhouse right away. Whereas I can totally see if you're into the sixties, London culture, you know, as soon as he's gets in his studio and has all those glamorous uh, models walking around and walks around in London with the phone booths and his cool Rolls Royce, you know, for a oh, certain yeah, crowd. Yeah. This Even is, if it's just uh, you're getting the jokes that Austin Powers was making or something <laughs> like that, you know. You just, yeah, give it to me, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you, I think you're onto something because you're right. I, I'm an Anglophile and I love that period. And again, that's kind of naturally what I like to talk about when I talk about this film or just all the really weird, fun artifacts from that year and that period. I, w I didn't experience it directly, but, but you're right. It's something that culturally I grew up kind of looking at and admiring and seeing on TV. And you, well, you, know, you see so, those, yeah. you know, those, uh, you know, plaster busts on the cover of the Sergeant Pepper album. Yeah, and, you exactly. Know, you see the, the, the curio shop here and. You know Vanessa Redgrave and and her thing and and uh, you know the Yardbirds and and uh, that really weird club scene where everybody's just standing around like zombies and then all of a sudden the guitar <laughs> smashes and then all of a sudden the place comes the alive. Boom. It's like yeah yeah yeah. It's just like it's it's very stylized and and definitely not how. I mean, you, know, you watch you know Monterey Pop or any film from that era, you can sort of see the audience as much more into the music that Antonioni gives them credit for and 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 like the the models who are interviewed in 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 retrospect you know say they were not these kind of dumb you know airhead blondes that that they might have been depicted in the film uh they, they were they were a part of the creative process it wasn't just the genius auteur photographer you know directing them and they were just passive mannequins they were they were involved, and so you know, Antonioni is definitely giving us kind of a a 
a very stylized and, and maybe even a distorted picture of what the scene was actually like, but it's still a fascinating relic uh, to just step back into that time capsule and, and see it all happening and, and to recognize the, the impact and the influence that it had, you know, um, for years, decades later. Yeah, part of that influence and uh, impact came directly from the sexual content of the film, which we've kind of alluded to several times uh, in the kind of rating smashing decision MGM made to release this without a rating, which was, as these things tend to go, immensely successful commercially. Uh, and actually, I was reminded doing some research on the film that Glenn Kenny rated uh, the initial photography scene where uh, David Hemmings is sort of taking pictures very aggressive photos of that uh, scantily clad model as the greatest sex scene in all of cinema. And I can see where he's coming from because there's something, there's a very sexual charge to that scene, even if it's not fully consummated and what is consummated later is sort of glancingly done. So, you know, we don't see the actual sex take place. We just get an intuition of it. Um, and there is a sense for me in which uh, Antonio is entering his horny old man stage of his filmmaking career. I think he'd really, reached the nadir of that with the uh, investigation of a woman in the early 80s, which is just like, I mean, it's an okay film, but it's a relentless excuse to get his lead actress naked as many times as possible. Uh, and Close you know, the set. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but there's a, I think there's a lot of filmmakers in the 60s and 70s who, you know, were reaching the middle age or even past it who were kind of jealous of the, the swinging period in which the kids were getting into experience. You know, they had grown up in a much more buttoned up society uh, or in Antonio's case in the midst of war, you know, I mean, he was born a couple years before World War One, and then was fully of age for World War Two, and never mind the economic volatility uh, all around then, you know, he never really got, is my impression, a, a proper youth. And I, I think in some ways this film is him trying to claim a bit of that uh, from the kids who do. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of vicarious thrills going on here, and 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 again, some of the supplements on the disc definitely show Antonioni, you know, as this you know heralded uh, you know god amongst men as far as the the creative force is concerned, and yeah, he's he is he's he's probably enjoying the the ego gratification of being celebrated to this extent, and also, you know, the ability to be with all these uh, beautiful young people. Uh, uh, you know, projecting himself into a little bit of the of the scene that he's uh, that he's documenting here. Well, and did you guys? Um, I, I don't want to skip around too much, Scott. You can you can redirect me. No, um, by all lot. means, skip. But I'm thinking of the, the some of the supplements in the book. They've got that questionnaire that Antonioni sent out to artists so they could understand them better. And then there's the um, the documentary uh, blow up on blow up, I think is what it's called, where you see the manager for the Yardbirds talking about how he just had to get his band in the movie. That there is this sense that you, you're right, David, and, and people people treated him like a god. And Antonioni is coming to London, and we all have a chance to be in this movie if we are worthy. And and he's going to ask us questions. We've got to, you know, we've got to be on our best uh, behavior and and really be insightful. Um, well, and even I also think it's really little... fascinating how how that plays right. out in the Hemmings character. Yeah, and also competitive and shark like. Like we're gonna like like the Yardbirds manager talks about how he kind of. You know, kind of played little mind yeah. games with the who. You know, like <laughs> yeah. he 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 prompted them to to demand more than they would get, so that 
they would get kicked out and the yardbirds would kind of swoop in. I mean, it's very, it's very cagey, very strategic. And, and again, that's, that's that <laughs> opportunism. That's very humorous because, uh, everybody's scrambling. Everybody's like looking to kind of get in on the hype. And, and, that well, and is he as knew much a part of the scene as that pure yeah. artistic creativity, right? He knew that Antonioni would, would not even like give them a second chance. He knew Antonioni was the kind of person that if they asked for too much, he would just give him the finger and tell him to get lost. And he just relied on, on that kind of ego to get his band in the in the picture. I thought that was a lot of fun. <laughs> and and it was great. I mean, it's pretty cool to see Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck up there and, and uh, doing their little stroll on slash train kept a rolling thing. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty awesome little clip there. Uh, and I'm sure for posterity, they're very happy that they made the cut. Yeah, for sure. I think I think it worked out for the best. I think the Who would have been like too perfect for what Antonioni was doing. The Yardbirds is just and, and, it's a little odd. Yeah, yeah, and I think the, you know the Who certainly they're very well documented from that period. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think they would have kind of taken over a little bit too much. So yeah, this was perfect. Uh, I really like uh, Vanessa Redgrave's performance. I think uh, Antonioni got very lucky in finding kind of the English language equivalent to uh, Monica Vitti. I think they have a very similar kind of look and presence on screen. And I think yeah, even just yeah. the way she like runs across the park is so captivating. And then uh, the way she just positions herself in sort of somewhat seducing David Hemmings and somewhat trying to get something from it. I mean, she never really like fully tips her hands to the audience or to him and She's so interesting to watch that that long, long yeah. scene in the loft remains like fully captivating throughout. And the fact that she can be that way and also look uncomfortable and vulnerable. Yeah, um, totally. She, she's got all those things going on perfectly. And she makes yeah, an and I, I, I was just going to say, she makes an interesting contrast to David Hemmings, who's such a bundle of energy and ego and confidence. And she's like just slightly uneasy and, it creates such a great tension between the two of them. Yeah, well, and and the sexuality of the film with uh, with the, the two girls and and with Varushka the model and and with the Vanessa Redgrave character. I mean, it's like these women recognize that you know they're in a generation where you sometimes kind of have to <laughs> unpeel, you know, literally to to you know get the job done. And 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 you know, there's there's a there's a part of them that maybe enjoys that you know but there's also a part of them that's you know maybe recognizing they're they're kind of being exploited and taken advantage of here and there, there's definitely a real tension to those scenes um as, as well as just the exuberance of, of being young and reckless and and kind of spontaneous so uh obviously yeah these these those scenes kind of like we you know so talked about some of the the Bergman films when we talked about the summer of Bergman last last year you know these these directors like Antonio and Bergman they recognize that that uh, portrayals of sexuality that are frank but are also you know artistically rendered um there's there's both a credibility and a, a pure box office element here that that uh, does you know, enhance what they're trying to do artistically as well as commercially and, uh, you know, blow up certainly a lot of its international success. Uh, it has to be attributed to the fact that it, it showed things that you didn't see on the, on the big screen very often, except in the more seedy <laughs> downtown theaters and very select cities around the world. Yeah, I really like that interview they have on the disc with Jane Birkin because we think of, I think, 
it's easy to think of at least a lot of the actresses of this period as just like going with the flow, man, and like totally happy to lay it all out there. And, but in reality, it was like this was the opportunity that existed for them. And the only way they were going to make their careers was to, yeah, shed a few clothes when maybe they wouldn't necessarily do so otherwise. And you think of how many actresses of the period would go on to have long careers, but they had to start by uh, getting nude. And there's something... A little, a little tragic about that. A little exploitative on the filmmakers' parts. Um, it is, especially when you hear her story, because she, she was actually a young married woman, married yeah. to a very successful John Barry, a, a composer for films, and, and she almost did it almost like on a dare. Like she was kind of told, "Oh, you'll never do that," so she kind of did it to sort of prove her own courage, you know. But it was very, <laughs> very tentative, and and. Uh, and it's linked. I mean, you know, Jane Birkin went on to have a pretty, you know, substantial career and and uh, uh, you know, accomplished things on her own right. But you're right, Scott. It, it does feel, you know, a little bit, uh, well, chauvinistic. I guess is a word that you could use because, uh, you know, David Hemmings was never asked to strip down quite to that level. No. <laughs> to yeah, to, to make his reputation. Yeah, even in the romp scene where they're all th- rolling around tearing off their clothes, he remains pretty clothed through most of that. <laughs> yep, 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 exactly. Um, do we want to talk a little bit about just the the, the photography and, and the, you know, I mean, Antonioni definitely had a very refined artistic aesthetic thing going on here with the, with the photography, with the paintings, uh, great supplements on the disc, again, bringing our attention to some of the, you know, art that was just kind of part of the milieu that he was functioning in, you know, uh, paintings on the wall, there is a kind of a sort of a neo-cubist type of thing that's, that's analyzed a bit in the film, and there's other, uh, you know, uh, Pretty, pretty uh, leading edge uh, works of art that are, you know, strategically uh, framed and presented to the audience, but but not really dwelled on. But uh, I, I really just appreciated those those touches where Antonioni is very much a student of the visual arts and what's happening at that time. And uh, the film, you know, in some indirect ways, serves as a showcase for you know, some, some really you know, interesting work that was going on. And then, and then there's the photography itself and just the study of the technology. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, having to run into a dark room and, you know, you've got your projector, you've got your paper up on the wall, you've got your dipping trays of chemicals and <laughs> in this era of, you know, Snapchat and, and digital uh, devices that are just snapping photos all over the place. I mean, even my trip out west, we were at Antelope Canyon and it's just like you get some really beautiful images in, in, in a, a scene like that in a, in a natural environment, but the reality is it is such a hustle of people being shuttled through these little narrow slot canyons and everybody just snap, 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 snap. And so, you know, Instagram is just getting flooded with all these images and, you know, Flickr and, and all these other, uh, you know, uh, Facebook, obviously, Twitter. People are posting these images all over the place instantly and, and you see the labor of photography in an earlier era and the interesting uh, mental and visual tricks that it plays uh, when we're still back in the analog days, and uh, it is just a, such a a nice capturing of of how photography was done and how photography was displayed in in you know large format books and magazines, and and then disposed of in many ways, uh, so that you know we you you lose track of these these relics, uh, and yet these these very physical elements did survive and were captured in a in a pretty uh, nice way by some of the archivists who wanted to search out 
what happened to these materials that are so uh, lovingly displayed throughout the film. Yeah, that was cool to see in the supplements how much they'd been able to hold on to throughout the years. Um, but yeah, I mean, just from a practical storytelling standpoint, it adds so much tension to the investigation scene where he's diving into the photos to have him have to constantly run back to the lab and wait for that to develop and, you know, shine the projector through at the right time and get the right size of the prints and all that. And it's like, there's so much work that goes into it, which you can appreciate it on a, a kind of artistic labor level. But then, like I said, just adding the tension to that investigation scene, having each step take so much time goes such a long way. Um, but in terms of how the art's reflected in the film, I think Antonioni had that same sort of sense of the work he's spotlighting, you know, of just highlighting the strangeness of just even that like uh, propeller coming out of the car, this tiny little car and this huge propeller is just such an odd little sight and the feathers that are up in his studio. And there's just all these little corners that Antonio either find, found or created, you know, I mean, he famously kind of painted streets and buildings and stuff to suit his uh, color temperament. Yeah, yeah, and such a such a diligent intentionality there, and such a nice way to to look at how do we try to document the world around us, um, both artistically and and to try to represent it literally, even if we if we have that skill, and do doing that in this case with art and photography and and kind of that still image. Um, while looking at a moving image and you know I know this isn't a podcast about the conversation and and blowout but I love how that thread carries over to those two films as they work with sound and do that kind of those lengthy scenes where you see them you know trying to clean up the tapes or or record the the, the night scene to get some perfect sounds or that beautiful opening shot of the conversation where they're, you know, doing some, some PI work there with all that sound equipment. Um, but just a nice way to look at how, how do we try to, to capture the, these time periods in this space around us and this world around us and the sounds and, and sights and how does that also distort and pervert our way of seeing the world around us and, and how does that, uh, manipulate our perceptions and you know again I like how that that particular thread was carried on to those later two films um, but you're right I, I hadn't really picked up on it as much here because that editing scene uh, or the the blowing up the images scene is so intense that I, I wasn't um, necessarily as focused on the the process there um, as, as as I would like to be next time I see it but um, but yeah I love I love those those scenes and how that all comes about and, and adds that texture and that life to this film but it's it's all still innuendo i mean it's still the way you sequence it and what you read into it i mean one thing you know the the, the very clear revelation of the hand holding the gun i almost wish that that scene had been or that that image had been rendered more ambiguous because it's like so I agree clearly there you know and it's like wow you know because you don't see that level of detail and anything else that's blown up to that level so i don't know it's it's uh it's not really a quibble it's just you know one thing that i wish they could kind of kept a little bit more of that ambiguity that that uncertainty because it's so <laughs> so so you know so clearly unmistakably that is a hand holding a gun uh, but even even in the in the film scene, you can sort of just see the very faint um, details of that body laying in the grass in color in in the moving image, as well as the you know re- very distorted 
depiction of it in in the blow up, you know. And so so it's another sort of example of the artistic process where even in something that's fairly spontaneous, unpremeditated, just kind of, you know, kind of grooving in the moment there, all of a sudden you seize upon some detail and there's depths of fascination and intrigue that you didn't expect to see, but there it is and you're drawn in and you just kind of go a little bit deeper into the rabbit hole and and see where it leads. In terms of those kind of uh, resolution issues, I guess we could call them, uh, I wonder if that's in some ways just like uh, a byproduct of technology. They talk about in the supplements how they need to find like the right film stock and all that to get the images in the blow-ups to be abstract enough and to still convey a sense of what they're going for. You wonder if they went through a few and just like couldn't quite find the right uh, ambiguity in the blow-up for the guy with the gun and they kind of settled on this. You know, I was a little, I didn't quite track that completely. Maybe they answered that in the supplements, but my impression was that, you know, they ultimately had a bit of guesswork involved and probably ended up at the best place they could with that. And it's the same thing with the park scene itself where, yeah, I mean, watching it now, you can clearly see a body laying there, but that's on, you know, high definition Blu-ray. You wonder if in a film print in 1966, yeah, totally. You wonder if in a film print in 1966, it would be as obvious. Yeah. I don't know. Obviously never saw it in the theater. Yeah, exactly. Didn't see it in its original run. So who knows what the, the grade of the film stock was or, or any of that. But but you know there's there's always that expediency. Sometimes you just gotta get that final cut in and submit it and <laughs> just let it be what it is. Yeah. Well, to the extent where it, it seems like the original screenplay had a lot more um, of that ambiguity removed, and it was like, well, we we got to get this done. Let's just forget all of that resolution. We don't need yeah. it anyway. <laughs> well, know? there was that that one in the in one of the supplements that talks about the uh, there's a. Some, some significant speech that was given by the photographer's agent where he kind of spells out some details and Antonioni just left it on the floor because he said that speech was too much. It explained what the movie was supposed to be about and we just couldn't allow that. So he, he I think he had the very, uh, and, and kind of a sorely missed uh, element nowadays because I think so many films really do feel the need to explain themselves and and uh antonioni i think very tastefully and and respectfully left that you know that mysterious element to the audience uh, without having to say okay here's here's how it all is supposed to you know (laughs) settle out or here's how it it all ties together um maybe it would be fine to find that screenplay and read a little bit uh more about what was in that speech because i still don't think we know to this at least it wasn't explained in the supplements what the content was that antonioni didn't want to reveal but uh yeah i i I guess i do uh, appreciate a director who's willing to leave us hanging just a little bit and allow us to draw some of our own conclusions it certainly makes conversations like this one uh seem a little bit more uh you know invigorating and 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 worthwhile because we all get to to give our own take on it well and that's i mean that's such a healthy process to go through i mean there are so many films you know kind of since this kind of 60s revolution that have tried to do the same ambiguity but because they're doing it on purpose it always they always feel a little undercooked with blow up and with a lot of antonio's films you can feel that there was a lot of work that went into the film that you don't see at all in the final product you know and that final speech is a perfect example where you can sense that at some point somebody you know worked out a way to 
very cleanly expressed the themes, but they kind of pulled back until they were left with, you know, the right amount of suggestive and uh, explicit material to kind of get it across. Uh, so I think that process is a very healthy one that I wish more films would engage in those that do choose the ambiguous route. Um, we're kind of nearing the end of where we usually kind of wrap things up. Do, have we yeah. gotten to any, anything you guys left on the cutting room floor yourselves that you wanted to get to? Well, let's see, let's see. We've, we've covered, I guess we've covered the, the ending sequence there. Uh, we've covered just some of the, the social you know, dynamics that are being documented. I don't know, do, do we want to talk a little bit about the tennis match at the end? Uh, is is it gratuitous? <laughs> is it is it just kind of uh, no? We got to finish this thing somehow. Or I, I do it... kind of like the tennis match. I'll say that. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's such a it's a weird element to bring back because we'd seen the mimes at the beginning. I mean, they're sort of mimes. They're kind of hooting and hollering at the beginning of the film. Uh, and then they kind of come roaring back into the film. It's like the last thing you would expect to show up at the end of a murder mystery, basically. Um, but it is this great kind of surreal cultural element to bring into the film too, to kind of express the theme in a different way and to kind of get at David's loneliness and isolation that he can't kind of fully enjoy this, uh, really kind of a delightful thing happening in front of him, but he can just kind of stand back and watch it. And then just disappear and, 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 and right. include his own stuff in the, in the empty space of the, of the mimes. No, I love it. And I, I also, is that the first time we've talked about explicitly um, David Hemming's isolation and alienation? Cause I do think that's a major part of this film. But I don't know if we really touched on it. Until I guess, I guess we haven't. That, so uh, let's let's dive into that <laughs> a little bit because I mean I think it's the nature of the way he set himself up as a photographer. You know, I think there are photog- plenty of photographers who lead happy social lives and document that in their work. But he's kind of as we said with the uh, lower class communities he gets into in the beginning. He's so uh, utilitarian and exploitative that he can't kind of see people apart from their use to him as subjects. Am I right yeah. there? How do we feel yeah. about that? I, I I do think you're right. I think that he stands out like a sore thumb in any place that he's at, whether whether like you said at the beginning when he's walking through that crowd of people who are just not like him and or when he's in a room and he does have control. He's still he's still a man apart uh, of all of that and he you know he doesn't he doesn't really connect with anybody in in the whole picture, even though he has people that you might assume he has some kind of relationship with, you know, his, his manager, it looks like he has a, you know, a significant other, maybe even a wife that, that there, there's nothing going on there. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't prepare any thoughts on this for tonight, but I do remember kind of thinking about how does that loneliness and alienation fit in with, with his eccentricities, um, with his desire to fill his life with these knickknacks. Like, I've got to have that propeller today. I, You know, I just saw it, but it's mine today. You know, obviously that has to do with his selfishness and his ego, but also with the fact that he's he's got some emptiness um, around him that he's trying to fill up. He's trying to create meaning out of disparate objects, which, which again, I think is a, a point of the film and, a, and something that the film manages to convey structurally that that a lot of people i think have problems with because it's not conventional and it isn't satisfying all the time to have disparate elements 
just thrown together and you make sense of it. But I do think that that's part of what this thing is saying. Here's this life. Here's this culture. There's a lot of great stuff going on. It's exciting. But, you know, this is Antonioni. It's also alienating and lonely and and you're disconnected and and you can feel it and so yeah i'm, I'm like i said <laughs> yeah I, 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 I had i i'm surprised that I, that that um didn't come up until now it just seemed now now that we're talking about it, it seems so pertinent well i think antonioni is is definitely intrigued and and you know fascinated and and very intent on really capturing this very vibrant scene but he's also sophisticated enough to know that this isn't you know the be all and end all of culture and that there is a sort of a fast facility and a trendiness a shallowness if you will and that you know and that this this young man who's been in some ways handed the world on a platter is is kind of an empty shell and so you've got these mimes playing out their game and he's not really able to withstand the force of their illusion i mean he sort of falls into this this spell that they're casting that there really is a tennis ball or that there really is you know an object being batted back and forth and you know and you know again it's an it's a matter of interpretation but is he saying you know don't be completely sucked in by this uh you know this whimsy that that is uh sort of you know the vogue of the day uh, you know, <laughs> or go John along Lennon with said, it. Yeah, yeah, or or yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing is real. Strawberry fields, you know. <laughs> Nothing to get <laughs> and, hung and, about. <laughs> exactly. Just let it flow, baby. You know. Uh, it, you know, we we have to make that decision. Uh, but there's going to be consequences, whichever way you decide. Oh, Mysterious. Thanks to both of you for that particular part. I that was well put by both of you. I appreciate that. Well, and I appreciate uh, your own uh, suggestion. Latching onto this is an important theme because uh, you can't talk about Antonio without an alienation. It'd be impossible. I can't believe we, like you said, that we got we, through so we much without it. We almost did it, but I we know. couldn't quite manage. <laughs> and it is, the alienation just forces side. its way into the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it is an interesting flip side to those Monica Vitti films where those films, people had so little to do and their loneliness came out of that. And here... He just fills his life with activity. You know, every minute seems to be accounted for in some way, but even that can't really satisfy the inner turmoil. And isn't that the modern condition? Um, I have one other thing that I would like to kind of touch on. Of course. We don't have to go into depth, but I'm thinking of the Julio Cortazar uh, story. This is uh, ostensibly based on um, blow-up that comes with the Criterion package. Um, This this I had read a long time ago. I am a big fan of Cortazar. And I, I reread it again um, leading up to, to today. It, it's so different, and yet there's so many kind of similar ideas floating about or similar wishes to mess with our perceptions that I think it might be worth at least just touching on or at least recommending to folks. You know, don't skip the Julio Cortazar story. He's, he's a, a genius and um, an incredibly well-regarded uh, world-class author, um, you know, just like Antonioni is a world-class um, uh, filmmaker, Cortazar is, is uh, you know, someone that that a lot of people look up to. He 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 taught classes on his work. He, that and those classes are transcribed into now published books. Um, you know, we just want to know what he thought about the world and the and the way he tried to to represent it. And I think this uh, 
the story is is pretty remarkable, and it's remarkable how how Antonioni took it, transplanted it from Paris into London, and just ran away with it. <laughs> yeah, I read a bit of it. I wanted to finish it, but unfortunately, the place I was at last night where I had time to kill did not have adequate lighting, so I was unable to read the rest of the story. But so correct me if I'm wrong here, but my kind of impression of it is that it was a little bit more uh, I don't know ambiguous and a little bit more um, kind of kind of had a multi multiple perspective thing going on whereas the film is very linear in a sense even though it has its abstract angles the story was much more abstracted and kind of latched onto details that were kind of disassembled and reassembled Am I getting at kind of the sense of the story yeah yeah you are and it does i think by the end and I, i'm not gonna spoil it for you scott but please don't <laughs> I, think, I do want to finish I think it yeah. by the end it does it does cohere maybe in a in a more satisfactory conventionally satisfactory way than blow up does but you're right it begins with a character who's telling the story from the i we he they it perspective and he keeps getting interrupted he says he's dead but no i'm actually alive i mean there's there's a very fractured personality a kind of a, a nut job telling this story and then we we kind of as the story goes along we become to understand just why he might have that fractured perspective because you know i i'm one who thinks that it is told by the same individual even though it's got all these strange um things going on about you know in one sentence it can it can go from i did this they did you know and and then all of a sudden it switches to the third person to back to the first person or even from the singular to the plural um in in very strange ways um and I think Antonio, you know, he doesn't do that, but I think he's still fiddling around with a lot of these similar ideas, but in a cinematic way. You know, he's he's dealing with fracture and with, uh, you know, the the structure of the film is fractured. I think that I think that it's 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 possible to watch this film and just watch one scene and be completely satisfied because that scene stands completely alone on on its own. But once you start putting them together, you go, no, that's that's not where that piece goes. Or, you know, this this glass that that broke and shattered on the floor, it's not quite fitting together. The, the, you know, the, the colors don't match. But but nevertheless, we're putting it together anyway in this particular manner. And um, and it does come together to form something. So, yes. So if, if folks haven't read the story, um, I'd recommend it. And I'd recommend reading lots more of uh, Cortazar's work. Yeah, I'm definitely intrigued by it. It kind of reminded me of uh, Alain Rob Grillet, if you've read any of his work a little bit. Um, yeah, and by yeah, extension, then Alain Rene's films, it definitely gave it, me a similar kind of sensation. Uh, the package as a whole, the Criterion package is really exemplary. I mean, we've touched on a lot of the supplements. There's no need to kind of go into them further, but it's it's a hefty package. I'm glad they kind of packaged it in the story with it to give it an extra bulk. And then all the on-disc supplements are really great. Yeah, it's it's really one of the most outstanding, you know, single film releases they've put forth in in a while. You know, I mean, they've done some really outstanding box sets. The Marseille trilogy just came in the mail the other day, so I'm I'm pretty pumped by you know the deluxe treatment they're getting. But you know, and it is kind of remarkable to me that this this film, which uh, you know for a while was was kind of in the the limbo there. It was a, a laserdisc title for for you know many years and didn't necessarily seem likely, you know, as a Warner Brothers release that the Cartier was going to get it back. But when they did, they really went all out and, and gave it, 
a pretty monumental treatment. And uh, yeah, I think again, as I said at the beginning, this this whole package just you know really brings out so many elements that you might either you know skim by or not fully appreciate without having your attention drawn back. This is a this is a really loaded film. There's a there's a lot going on, and it, you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily you know, perhaps for people who who have a hard time getting it, doesn't it doesn't you know add up to one comprehensive wow whammo moment? It's 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 full of very intriguing scenes that that draw us in, and and to me that's that's what I love about it. Uh, well said, Trevor. Any final thoughts? What what do you guys think about Criterion's cover treatment? Because that's that's unique to them, right? This is it, it, obviously it's got the iconic image. And yep. the iconic font, but I think the structure of it is is unique to them, and I'm I'm a big fan. I like the I like the shrunken um, David Hemming straddling. I, I think they couldn't get away from putting that on the cover, but I like how how the blow up is is around them. I like the colors. Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of the oh, package too. The and I'm feel of, of the, the box, you know, the yeah. the booklet, and uh, even even and the 1966 blow up. emblazoned Perfect. on the Blu-ray. <laughs> exactly, yes. that is like, it's like Batman 66 or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, it is. It's, it is such a pivotal moment, and I get to, you know it certainly speaks to me. That's my wheelhouse right there, and uh, so yeah, just the fact that they they zeroed in on that particular element. In its moment in time, it's uh, it, it's it's kind of like it's it, to me it is like a, a breathless or or other films that just kind of mark their era with this very distinctive stamp. And so, yeah, I I, I can agree that Antonioni's you know <sighs> Hall of Fame greatness is probably established in his Italian films, uh, and that in in a way this this sort of marks maybe not a de- decline but a departure from you know, his, you know, complete mastery. But this is still such a fascinating uh, work of his and uh, one I'm really glad that it got the very loving treatment that it did. As am I, and I'm glad we took the time to discuss it. Thanks so much for joining me, you guys. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, great to reconnect, Scott, definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, listeners, you can hopefully look forward to more of us chatting than you've been used to over the last few months. We're trying to get back in the swing of things a little bit and we'll kind of rotate picks and who hosts these things and who you know takes the lead and hopefully tackle a, a, as diverse an array of films as Criterion has supplied us with. Uh, so I'm looking That's forward right. to that. We uh, got a little bit of a schedule ahead of us there, yeah. I know. We're getting almost too packed. Trevor's list the other day was uh, quite daunting <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> we'll do what we can. Exactly. Um, well, thanks again for joining me, guys. Listeners, thanks for listening. And, uh, you know, go take some photos. Go for a stroll in the park. You never know what you'll find. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>